say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he went al- and as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now... It is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of the Lord's coming. Thank you, Carol. It's true, we are going to look at chapter 18, so thank you for that prophetic insight. I think there's only two occurrences in the New Testament that refer to Jesus weeping. Jesus weeps when his friend Lazarus dies, and he is obviously concerned about his beloved friend having to go through the trauma of death. But also here in the reading that we just heard, Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And it's clear that Israel have to make a decision at this point. Israel have to make a decision about who they think this Jesus is. And from the text that you've just heard read, it's pretty clear that it's not going to go well for Jerusalem. Verse 42 says, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. What a concerning place to be where peace is hidden from your eyes. And that was his verdict on Jerusalem, that the peace that Jesus is bringing in is hidden from their eyes. It may be for some of you here this morning that there is a sense that you are struggling to see peace. Not only are you struggling to experience peace, you're struggling to actually see how peace could be a part of your life. The band Third Day sing a song with the title, Who is this King of Glory? Which is basically the question that Luke is asking in these 16 verses that we've just had read to us. Who is this King of Glory? And there's a responding question, how do we respond to this King of Glory? My prayer for you this morning, for all of us this morning, as we're gathering, that this King of glory will reveal himself to you. Not only that, that you will know the peace that he's offering to us. So let's pause for prayer and ask for the Lord's enabling. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for the privilege of being able to gather as your church, your body, here today, this morning. And we thank you for this word that we have just heard read to us. We ask now that you would allow this word to settle on our hearts, that by your spirit, you would speak your truth into our hearts. We ask even now, Lord, that you would humble our proud hearts, you would strengthen our timid hearts, you would heal our broken hearts, that we might know Jesus in his name and for his glory, I pray. Amen. Well, I did say we're going to have a look at chapter 18, so thank you, Carol, because this morning I want to spend a little bit of time exploring the context of the 16 verses that you've just had read to you, because I believe that the context, as always, is important, but this morning it's vital. I would say it is the key to understanding Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the verses, in particular, four paragraphs before the verse verses that we've just had read to you. So turn back to chapter 18 with me, if you will. And in verses 31 and 34 in chapter 18, Jesus predicts his death. He said to his disciples, he took his 12 aside, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles They will mock him, they will insult him, they will spit on him, they will flog him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. The disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, they did not know what he was talking about. Jesus here is describing what comes to be known as the gospel, the good news. But his disciples, the twelve who he shared what was going to happen, didn't understand what he was talking about. They'd spent three years with him, and they had this close, intimate relationship with him. And now he's saying that the fulfillment of the Scriptures are going to come. The Son of Man's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's going to be spat on. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, he's going to rise again, and they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. They couldn't make the connection between the Old Testament prophecies and this friend that they had and that they've been journeying with for the last three years. They didn't understand the gospel at this point. Until you receive this truth, you have nothing. The disciples at this point have a good friend. But until they receive the truth of the gospel, they have nothing more than a good friend in front of them. That's an important context before we jump into Palm Sunday. The second paragraph that Luke deliberately displays following that announcement is as Jesus goes into Jericho, he comes across a blind beggar. And the blind beggar cries out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The disciples try to silence him and now Jesus engages with this blind beggar. And he says, he asks this incredible question, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind beggar says, Lord, I want to see. I want to see. And because of this man's faith, Jesus heals him with a word. He says, receive your sight. And immediately he can see and significantly he follows Jesus. Incredible transformation. And we're going to learn a bit more about that in a moment. The miracle is offered to the apostles, 
not just to the blind men, and it's offered to us. What is it you want from me? Lord, I want to see. I want to see. The third paragraph, as Jesus continues on his journey, he actually gets into Jericho, and here the crowds start forming, and a little short man, and this is a little word of encouragement for all the short people out there, a little short man called Zacchaeus races ahead into the trees, and he climbs up a tree, and he's observing the crowd, and he's observing Jesus, and Jesus picks him out, and he says, Zacchaeus, I want to have lunch with you today. I want to spend time with you today. And the crowds and the people know who this guy is. He is the chief tax collector. He's a, a sinner in their names. He's despised. He's very wealthy. He's got his wealth off, off the people. He's despised. He's called a sinner. And Jesus goes and has lunch with him. And such is the transformative impact that Jesus has on Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus in repentance says, look, I've been cheating all these people, and I'm going to give what I've cheated these people back fourfold. In my tax collecting, I'm going to give them back fourfold. That would be all right, wouldn't it? Not only that, he says, I'm going to give half of my belongings to the poor. That wouldn't be quite so good, right? But this incredible transformation takes place in Zacchaeus' heart, a, a transformation of repentance. He's going to give back what he's taken. He's going to give half of his wealth to the poor. That's the third paragraph. And the fourth and the significant one, just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, is the parable of the miners. But before Jesus describes the parable of the miners, he says the following words. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So he's describing his mission. And then he describes this interesting parable, the parable of the miners. Chapter 19, verse 12, we read, He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and he gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want this man to be our king. Now, a miner is, as the text in the NIV says, is approximately three months' wages. So on today's average wages, let's consider these 10 servants have been given $14,000. Go and use it. Go and make use of this $14,000. The noble is rejected, but he is made king despite the rejection of the people in this parable. On assessing three of the servants who come back with the miners, one returns with the initial miner and he has tenfold. And the king responds to this man, well done, my good servant. The next servant comes back. He's been given a miner. He comes back with five miners. I haven't done the mass. You'll have to work out the mass, what it is. I could do it for the first one, not the second one. He comes back with five. Again, he is affirmed. And these two servants, the king says, you've been trustworthy, and so I'm going to place you in charge of ten cities, and I'm going to place you in charge of five cities, respectively. Then the third servant comes back. He's suspicious of the king. I've got my miner, I buried it away because I didn't trust you, and here's your miner back. And he receives a scathing rebuke from the king. He's stripped of his miner, 
And that one minor is given to the first who already had 11 minors after his. And then Jesus articulates this principle at the end of the parable in verse 26. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even that will have been taken away. And then the parable ends with the scathing word of a judgment on those people who reject the king. So we have these four passages that Luke and Jesus has very deliberately placed in context before he comes into Jerusalem. An articulation of the gospel. We have the blind beggar who asks Jesus, I want to see, and he has this miracle and he sees not only does he see, he begins to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus, who's repenting, and the, the parable of the ten miners. I want to suggest that these actually lay a foundation for us understanding what's going on as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This remarkable and unlikely entrance into Jerusalem. And so we come to our text in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. He's coming into Jericho, this unlikely entrance. The king comes in and he's riding on a colt, an unridden colt. And so he sends these two ahead. They go ahead. They do exactly as they've been bidden. And just as in the parable before, it's quite clear that Jesus is intimately in charge. He is completely in charge of what's unfolding on this day. They go, they find the colt, the owner is a little bit grumpy, what's going on? The Lord needs it. He takes it. They bring it back to the Lord, and they put their cloak on the donkey. Then they, Luke records, place Jesus on the donkey significantly, and then they begin to take their cloaks off, and the crowds, as he enters into Jerusalem, the crowds start laying down their cloaks before the Lord Jesus. Luke, interestingly, doesn't reference the palms, he references the cloaks. And so the king is coming riding on a colt, riding on a donkey. And then we read the following. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. How could a king, how could a king be entering in to Jerusalem on this work animal, this donkey, this belligerent donkey. How could that be happening? Well, a couple of weeks ago, Bill and Jean very generously lent me their DVD of Ben-Hur. I made reference to it, and they lent me the classic DVD, Ben-Hur. And it is a classic. It's the 1959 version. It's an epic in all manner of speaking. Uh, it's upwards of four hours. You didn't tell me that, Bill. So there was my Friday gone, but it was worth it, I might say. It was worth it. In fact, so good was it, it's entered into my top three DVDs or movies of all time. My, uh, my oldest son was very upset to hear that uh, the castle has now slipped out of uh, the top three. I know, it's quite shocking, but that's how good Ben-Hur is, you see. 
Why I reference is that one of the things that you catch a glimpse of Ben-Hur, it's a great story of, of, the, Lord, of, the, of the Lord's journey. But you catch a glimpse of the pomp and the splendor of Rome. You catch a glimpse of the authority of Rome. Whenever anything to do with Caesar or the governor or of, of Rome, uh, you see the power and the authority. And it's articulated in everything, in the architecture, in the music, in the, in the army. Everything about Rome screams that I am in charge and don't mess with me. The power of Rome. And so here we see Jesus coming, riding in humility, in absolute contrast to all that the people think about authority and power. He comes in humility, riding on a donkey. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he's fulfilling the word of Scripture. Remember back in 18, we said Scripture must be fulfilled and will be fulfilled Jesus is literally fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, where we read the following. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In humility, Jesus is coming as the humble king, riding on the colt of a donkey. Okay, I want to come to the two verses now, which I think are the hinge of this passage. The fulcrum, you might say, in terms of what this swings on, this passage, where Jesus says the following. He said, as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. If you, Jerusalem, had only known what would bring you peace, but it is hidden from your eyes. They couldn't see what was coming before their very eyes. They couldn't understand this, this man who they had been praising for all the miracles they had been praising God for, and they couldn't understand. And this peace that he's bringing in, in his very person, it's hidden from their eyes. They are blinded, just as blind as that beggar. If you, Jerusalem, if you, Jerusalem, Jesus is weeping here. I mentioned earlier the two occasions where Jesus weeps, when his friend Lazarus dies, and here when he comes into Jerusalem. And the connection is very clear. The connection is very clear. Jesus knew that Lazarus would be raised from the dead, and yet he weeps. And now he looks at Jerusalem, and he weeps because he wonders. He wonders. Where is their heart? Where is their heart? You, even you, Jerusalem, the people of God who have experienced so much. You've experienced so much life and so much death. You've experienced so much peace and so much cursing. You, if only you. But you can't see this peace which is before your very eyes. On this day, Jesus says, of all days, if only you had the wisdom and the faith and the humility to know what would bring you peace. And Jesus cries. You're like the blind beggar. You cannot see, but worse, much worse than the blind beggar. You're not even wanting to see Jerusalem. You are lost in your unbelief and in your sin. 
And Jesus goes on to say, it will not end if you stay in this place of unbelief. Look at the verses in 43 and following. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground and you and your children within your walls and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming amongst you. What an incredible word of judgment. Not just them, but their children. They will be encamped around by their enemies. Their children will fall because you did not recognize God coming amongst you. Jesus said it to Jerusalem. And he says it to us this morning. He says it to you this morning. You didn't recognize the day when God come amongst you. Palm Sunday is all about the triumphant entry of Jesus, the eternal significance of Jesus coming into Jerusalem that last time in his earthly ministry. And it's a triumph. It's a victory. And the people are praising God for the miracles that they've seen. And yet, Jesus says, you didn't see. You couldn't see the peace that was coming amongst you. I mentioned how the context of this passage, Luke is very deliberate in shaping the context for our understanding. He talks about the gospel. Jesus described to his 12 disciples how he will come into Jerusalem and he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be beaten. He will be spat on. He will be flogged. He will be killed. But on the third day, he will be raised to life. The miracle of blindness is described where the blind beggar asks, I want to see, and he is given the gift of sight, and he follows Jesus. Zacchaeus turns in repentance. He follows Jesus with all his heart, and he gives all of them to himself. And then that interesting parable, the miner, the ten miners. Why would Luke and why would Jesus deliberately place the parable of the miners just before he's talking about receiving his peace? Well, he's talking about the gifts that we've been given. He's talking about the talents that we've been given. And what are we doing? Are we using these gifts for God's glory? Are you using the gifts that God has given for your glory? The talents, the minors that God has given for you graciously. How are you exercising those talents if you want to know peace? This week we had the, Mary and I had the gift of having Steve in our midst using his craftsmanship to do a work on our property, and it is a work of craftsmanship. And he's using his gifts that God has given for God's glory. It's about Rachel and Kinton raising their baby in the way of righteousness, taking the gifts that God has given them and raising this child in the way of righteousness in every parent in this room. It's about Mike serving on the city council and taking the gifts of leadership that God has given to him and using it for God's glory. It's about Zishan preaching the book of Jonah, using the gifts that God has given him and revealing God's kingdom through the gifts that he's given. What about you? What gifts, what talents, what minors has God given to you so that you can see the peace of God? All use for the glory of God. All use for the extension of God's kingdom. 
Church Palm Sunday is about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. The eternal significance of that week. The eternal significance. And as we're going to celebrate this week, it has changed. It has changed history forever. It's eternally significant, but it's significant for you this morning. These 16 verses are eternally significant for you this morning. You see, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, but he comes to you this morning, and he says, if you, if you could see when God has come amongst you. I referenced the song earlier, Third Day, which has the lyrics as follows. Who is this king of glory that pursues me with his love? He haunts me with each hearing of his softly spoken words. My conscience a reminder of forgiveness that I need. Who is this king of glory who offers it to me? His name is Jesus, precious Jesus, the Lord Almighty, the king of my heart, the king of glory. Let's bow our heads. Let's bow our hearts. Let's close our eyes and let's allow this king of glory to enter into afresh your heart and mind and soul. Father, as we gather in your name this morning, as we sit under these words, your word, your eternal word, as we reflect on the eternal truth of your coming to Jerusalem on that day and all that that meant for them, we reflect now on the eternal significance of what it means for us. Lord, I pray for every heart and mind and soul here this morning that you would open the eyes of our heart, as Paul says, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see you, God, as you enter into our lives, that we would take the gifts that you have given to us, whatever those gifts, whatever those talents, that we would use them for your glory. Lord, that we would turn from our greedy and selfish ways and we would turn back to you. Lord, that you would open our eyes that we might see the truth of your gospel, the truth of your life, the truth of your death, the truth of your resurrection. Lord, as you come into our hearts afresh this morning, that we might live our lives truly in the reality of your peace, truly in the reality of the shalom that you bring, not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, not just to Samaria, but to the ends of the earth, to our very lives here this morning. Minister your grace, minister your peace to your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, for his sake and for his glory. Amen.